0: Uh, we'll just jump right into it. Tonight is part 12 of our series as we've been traversing through the letters of the Apostle Peter. Uh, we spent uh, several weeks, of course, going through 1 Peter. and uh, We what, as I was kind of reflecting and trying to summarize that in preparation for tonight's sermon. Uh, I was really just drawn to the fact that First Peter is very much an autobiographical letter, we could say. It's very much Peter is giving sort of basically some of his life story in and through the letter as he's writing to the churches. Uh, if in First Peter 1 verse 1, he's talking about all the different churches he's writing to. And you can really see Peter's life on display. And as he's giving them a charge to how to uh, be the church, how to evidence that they are the church. He's really giving a testimony of how God has transformed his own life. Which then in turn uh, leads us into knowing the fact that this is the same sort of ministry that Jesus carries forward in the churches. In the churches that he was writing to is this ministry of transformation. And we saw all those different evidences, um, uh, how they evidence that they are the church. Baptism, submission, uh, service, uh, brotherly love. All these different things that Peter really hones in on and focuses on. It all goes back, uh, which was sort of our foundational verse for, for First Peter, which was First Peter one verse three, where it was talking about the lively hope that we are born again unto. What's interesting, of course, uh, First Peter is, is five chapters uh, that are just full to the brim. They are just packed with so much richness, so much depth, so much uh, doctrine, so much theology that, that Peter is really cramming in there. Uh, and he hints at the end of First Peter, actually First Peter chapter 5 verse 12 where he talks about uh, he has only written briefly. <laughs> uh, he, he mentions that fact, which I just find funny, because he is one of the longer epistles. And he's like, it's just a brief letter, just a brief little thing that I wanted to write you. <laughs> and it's kind of Hinting at the fact that there was another letter that he could have written, which is sort of where we get Second uh, Peter. Second uh, Peter, I've found as I've been reading through it, is a very much uh, it's, it's, it carries forward the sort of foundationalness, if I can make up that word, of Peter's letters. Uh, we sang how firm a foundation, and I really think that what Peter has gone through. In the first letter, now it's going through in this letter, is just that very fact that he's writing about the foundations of the faith. That very many of the people that he was around, that he was serving with, that even would come after him, could rely on, could find to uh, have as their uh, certainty. You might find it interesting to know that Second Peter is a letter that's brought under some sort of scholarly speculation, so to speak. Um... To my surprise, at least, um, some are doubt some doubt it 's authenticity, uh, some doubt that it is actually Peter who wrote it. Uh, if, if you read Second uh, Peter chapter two and then you read the Book of Jude, uh, they have lots and lots of similarities in terms of the content in terms of what they are hoping to address. Uh, in terms of the tone, especially, uh, which has led many to believe that perhaps this is someone else writing uh, Second Peter. Uh, many also say if that if you examine sort of the Greek syntax and all that kind of stuff, that it, it doesn't sound like Peter. It doesn't sound like the Peter that we are familiar with, so to speak, which I think is okay when you know sort of why that is. Um, and the reason why I don't worry about those those disputes or whatever, those speculations, is because, number one, it's the Word of God. Number two, verse one, he calls himself Simon Peter. He says, verse one, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, and then, if you go to 2 Peter chapter one, verses 16 through 18, which we'll cover in a couple of weeks, um, he... Makes a very bold declaration that he was actually privy, whoever the author is, he was actually present at the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, Those verses are very much reminiscent of that moment. Mark chapter 9, if you want to go there, it's recorded and also uh, Matthew. Um, But he makes reference to the fact that I was there, I was there at that moment. Which also would be a a very deliberately deceptive thing to do if it wasn't Peter. Uh, if it wasn't Peter, you can obviously uh, make sort of – you can see through uh, through these uh, sort of sentences that this would be a very egregious forgery sort of trying to uh, purport something that is – Perhaps apostolic, which again, the early church was very much adamant about seeing through those sorts of things. Forgeries, especially letters that were claiming to be apostolic, were very much condemned and thrown out and discarded. Uh, very early on, this letter was seen by very many uh, early church fathers as being very authentic. And of course, it's the Word of God and is here right before us. Um, all that to say, uh, this is very much Peter. Uh, so, so what inspires sort of the different tone? What inspires sort of the different leaning of Peter here in this second letter to these churches? Because there is a difference. There, there is, I think, uh, sort of a variedness between both letters. And I think that's on purpose. What inspires this letter then? Well, I think this is really, we, we can deduce this from these first four verses uh, I think these are very foundational verses, not just for this letter, but for the entire Christian faith too. Because uh, notice what he says here in the first couple of verses of 2 Peter 1. He says, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust." Of course, as usual with Peter, there's a lot to unpack here. He is really cramming again as much doctrine and rich truth that he can into as small a space as he can. Uh, First Peter was a letter that was written perhaps in the early 60s AD. Uh, Here, this is a letter written perhaps most likely in the mid to late 60s AD. And it says, uh, history tells us that Peter was later martyred in Rome. And as you might perhaps know, uh, upside down on a cross, and you can you can feel this if you keep reading Peter's letter, especially jump to verse 12, because you can feel sort of the imminence that Peter feels uh, uh, regarding this death that is sort of out there for him, sort of waiting for him. Notice verse 12. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet as, or I think it necessary, as long as I am in this tabernacle, in this body, you could say, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must be, I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. You get this sense that Peter knows something is drawing near. Something is very close. His time and what he, as he says here, to put off his tabernacle is coming very near towards him. Such is why Second Peter has very much the tenor, sort of the tone of almost a farewell letter. You get the sense that here's all the things that he knows, here's all the things that he sees, and he's pouring it into this letter. It's, it's very much a letter of conclusion, of finality, and it's a letter of wanting to establish those that will be there after him in a very solid and certain way. He wanted to, as he says here, put them in remembrance, He wanted them to remember precisely the things that they can rely on for their future days. Things that he has come to learn, come to know, come to experience. So if this, you get the sense that if this is Peter's last publication, his last sort of published letter, so to speak, to the churches, he wants to sort of pour into them the solid ground, the firm foundation that they can stand on. This is essentially what's happening in and throughout this letter. Again, notice those verses, 12 through 15, he uses that word remembrance three times. Put you in remembrance. Put you in remembrance of these things. He's wanting to be precise and accurate with what he wants them to know. And so, what does he want them to know? Well, again, go back to verse 2. He says, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Here we have knowledge mentioned twice in these verses. And actually it's a word that will appear in varied forms some 13 times throughout this letter. Knowledge, knowing, that sort of thing. It's, it's going to appear often throughout these different chapters in Second Peter. Even despite being a shorter letter, it's filled to the brim with this idea that Peter is putting them into precise remembrance. That's essentially what this word knowledge means precision or correctness. He wants them to be very precise with what they know, with what they rely on, with what they are standing on uh, as the church. So as these younger churches are feeling the heat of the persecution that was coming for Christians. Again, this is in the heyday of Nero's leadership of Rome. The heyday of when Christians were being tortured and crucified and executed. uh, Sort of Colosseum style for their belief in Jesus. And here he's wanting to be very precise. Yes, here's what you can know. For certain, with precision, with firmness, as their sort of firm foundation, again, and was that knowledge Again? Notice verses two and three, he says, "The knowledge of God and of Jesus in verse three, knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue. He wants them to know what it means to be the church, that they can know the certainty. Of Jesus' work for them. That Jesus' accomplishments on behalf of the church, not just them, but the church universal. All of the churches that make up Jesus' bride, so to speak. He wants them to know that this is a work that has present effects for them and has future byproducts for them as well. It affects them in the here and now and has future certainties that they can continue to rely on, continue to feed on, continue to hope in. That's essentially the theme of this letter. This certainty of Jesus' work. In chapter one, we could summarize it by this is the certainty of God's work or Jesus' work in the present. He talks about how this. what we're going to kind of get into tonight is the certainty of this work as our foundation and how it leads us to grow in our faith as he talks about in verse 5 and continuing. This giving all diligence and in chapter 2 he talks about false teachers and how we can have that faith inform our discernment to know when people are off the rocker and they're not speaking truth and that we can be certain of what Jesus has said and what Jesus has done. In chapter 3, there's the there's certainty of, of Jesus' work for the future and how it informs us and how to regard those future days. Now we can be certain of that work and how Jesus has secured it for us already. To where we don't have to fret, we don't have to, we don't have to panic about future days. Doesn't that seem relevant? <laughs> I know it does for me. <laughs> Seems very uh, much a resonant theme for us even now. This certainty of Jesus' work for the here and now and for all of the days of the future. And this is really what this letter is about. He's coming alongside these churches and he's giving them assurance. He's coming alongside them and giving them assurance of their faith. He's one who is is constantly coming alongside these who are in these churches. And as they are having their faith rocked by all the people that they are seeing either fall away from the church or being devoured for their faith in Jesus. And he wants them to be sure that this is true. You can bank on this. You can trust this. He He established the church in the first letter. And here he's affirming the church in the second letter. He's affirming their assurance that you can know for certain Jesus' work is true and is good. It is for you. You know, I mentioned this last time, and perhaps I should have saved it, but um, I mentioned last time that one of the the biggest threats, I believe, um, to the longevity of the church is the constant unsettling of the faith of the church. I'm not saying that we can't have times of conviction, can't have times of introspection, can't have times where we must re-sort of affirm what we believe and know to be true. But there is, I, I believe, I've been in certain uh, situations, sermon context so to speak, where it's almost like a manipulated feeling that you don't know Jesus. That does a lot of detriment to those who are in the church. That does a lot of sort of this this manufactured sort of decisions that cause you to doubt that what you have is true and that what Jesus did is actually for you. That is something that actually damages faith. I don't see Peter doing that here. He's not coming alongside them and trying to manufacture sort of a new decision to, to rededicate their lives to Jesus, so to speak. He's coming alongside them. The, Here's Jesus' work for you. You have everything that you need for life and godliness in Jesus. It's already yours. It's yours. It is already given to you. This was Peter's goal. He's, he's incessantly sort of affirming the truth of scripture that what Jesus has accomplished has been given to them in Jesus' work already. It's a faith that is settled. You can give all diligence towards it because it's already yours. It's already given to them. So this is how he enriches their faith. This is how he encourages these these uh, these who are in this church here. That that yes, this work for Jesus is already finished. And that's what I would say is my goal as well. Is is to whoever comes to this church to have your faith enriched or if you are a newcomer to the faith to uh, to invite you to this faith but either way it is about a deepening and a growing in your assurance You're growing deeper in your awareness that this work of Jesus is for you. It is certain that he has given it to you. And that you, as a believer in Jesus, can be so sure and certain that you are his. As I said last time, I I sort of really botched the quote from this Dutch theologian last time. But I looked it up and I got it down this time so I can quote it to you. Where he's talking about sort of the questioning of your assurance. And he says... The good seed cannot flourish when it is repeatedly dug up for the purpose of examining its growth. (laughs) And I think that is so true. That if you're constantly digging it up to examine the growth and make sure you can measure how high the stock is, you're constantly uprooting something that should be growing deeper. It It should have its roots being firmly planted and firmly going deeper and deeper into the solid foundation of who Jesus is and what he has done for you. Which is again what I think what discipleship is all about. It's not about having these different methods and checklists of examination to ensure to where we can get assurance. Discipleship is about a growing awareness that Jesus' work is for us. And we can be certain of that by faith. And that work affects all the different tendrils of our lives. All the different facets of who we are as human beings, as men and women, as sinners that have been redeemed by grace. That work of Jesus affects every single facet of that life. This is what I think Peter's doing. He's not manipulating new decisions for Jesus. He is examining and he is, and he is encouraging this church through the assured work that they can have in Jesus Christ. And notice what he does. This is the assurance that the church can have. Notice where it's rooted. Verse 1. He's an apostle and a servant of Jesus Christ. Notice, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God. This is the prevailing theme of not just this letter, but the letters of the Apostle Paul. This is the sort of tenet of the Christian faith that radically has changed the Christian faith back in the 1500s. This This theme of God's righteousness is what sparked what we know as the Protestant Reformation. As Martin Luther was radically moved by Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17 where Paul talks about this righteousness of God. He was moved by the fact that this is a righteousness that is given to us. This drastically changes the whole fabric of the church. I was just reading about... I was just reading about that whole time period, which I I'm so fascinated by Reformation church church Reformation history, only because uh, if you I'm sure you you are perhaps familiar with some of the colloquial things about that time period and about how of course the um uh, sort of the priest there uh, Tetzel Johann Tetzel was one of the characters sort of in this story and about how he was selling indulgences. I don't know if you have ever studied that sort of. That tenet of Catholic belief out to its sort of length. Um, but I was doing a little bit of reading about it. And it's what they are doing is selling forgiveness. And that's what Johann Tetzel was doing because they, they were trying to fund a building project for his higher-up bishop who was answering to the pope at that time. So what did they do? They started tendering out these papers that you could receive where you could be assured, quote-unquote, that your, that your loved ones, that you yourself were receiving forgiveness of God. As long as you were putting a little bit of money in the coffer, there was like a little, you know, a little ditty that they used to have back then. Selling forgiveness. As long as you're putting money in the offering plate. That's not what we do here, by the way. (laughs) That's not what that little plate is back there. It's not about indulgences. You can't sell what's already yours. This is what I think this is about. What Peter's letter is about. What Paul's letters were about. What changed Martin Luther was was that very fact. That the forgiveness that he everywhere longed to have was already his. By faith in Jesus, in the righteousness of God that was given to him by Jesus. That's the firm foundation of the church. That's the firm foundation of all those who would say, I believe in Jesus Christ. You are given the righteousness of God. Which forgives you of your sin you know martin luther is a fascinating figure only because he was a very devout augustinian monk so much so that one person one of his sort of higher ups when he was in that sort of order of priests was so frustrated by the fact that he was constantly confessing even the minutest of little things that he was taking up too much of his time in the confession booth that's how devoted luther was And very much so that this affected Luther uh, longer in his life because he was always afflicted by this constant idea that he wasn't measuring up. And that's the whole point. Because he was going about it through man's way. He was going about it through jumping to verse 5 before he got to verse (laughs) 1. He was going about it by giving all diligence without realizing that God had already given him everything that he needed for life and godliness. He was jumping ahead. (laughs) He was going about it as if he could master the righteousness of God. And in fact, Luther ends up becoming so angry at God. Why would you give us this command that I cannot keep? Because I cannot find assurance on my own. I cannot find the peace of God by myself, on my own, through my own works. And that's sort of the whole point. (laughs) He couldn't. And that's when he read Romans, well let me just read it, it's very similar to 1 Peter 1, or 2 Peter 1, 1 here, but Romans 1.16 is sort of the, the, you know, the, the colloquial thing, the spark that lit the flame of the Reformation you could say. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And therein Martin Luther saw it. He saw that the church was selling something that was so egregious. They were selling something that God had already given them for free. It wasn't free to God. It was was free because Jesus had shed his blood. And the church was trying to profit off of it. (laughs) They're trying to make a buck off of selling what Jesus says, Here, take it. It's yours by faith. This I see is what Peter's doing. He's bringing to the fore again the righteousness of God. As he is seeing, you can see it. I could just see Peter as he knows that his demise is coming, that he is about to have to put off this earthly body, this earthly tabernacle. He sees that what is going to keep the church afloat is not the fact that they will be so rigorous in their righteous life. What is going to keep the church afloat is the firm foundation that the righteousness of God is given to them by faith in Jesus. That's what the keeps the church standing. It's not them, it's Jesus. It's not their efforts, it's Christ alone. That's the only righteousness that redeems and rescues and, and, and brings sinners out of condemnation and into certainty is the righteousness that God gives by faith in Jesus. This is the foundation of the church. And this is what he says. This is that. As he says back in verse 1. This is that precious faith. That we have. Through this knowledge of God. And of Jesus. It's this knowledge of, of righteousness. That has already been accomplished. On your behalf. And is given unto us. Notice again verse 3 and 4. According. According. As his divine power, Jesus' divine power, hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby we are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust." Given unto us. This is Jesus' ministry. It's a ministry of giving. Giving so much so that we don't have to work up or work into getting it. This is, this is, the, this is the, what is so incredibly foundational and so radically different than what we're often accustomed to uh, being familiar with. But as, as you notice here, we give all diligence, as he says there in verse 5, not so that we can have the righteousness of God, but because we have the righteousness of God. That's not just semantics. That's not just grammar. That's the gospel. This is sort of the whole point of the Reformation. That there was all these things that you had to do so that you could get something. As if it's sort of this carrot that's dangling at the end of the hook that you're so working after. And Peter and Paul and then, yeah, Luther too would say, no, that's missing the point. You have the righteousness of God. Therefore, you can give all diligence. Because it's already yours. It's yours by faith. Again, you don't work for the righteousness of God. You work from the righteousness of God. You don't work for assurance. You work from assurance. Your daily devotional life. That's not uh, the little things that you're checking off in order to get assured of the faith that you think you want to have or that you, or that you so desire to have. That's the life that comes about from knowing that you are assured of your salvation in Jesus. It's work from assurance. This is, the, this is the freeness of the Christian life. Because so you're not working for something, you're working from something. Victory that's already guaranteed, a finished work that's already yours, already accomplished on behalf of Jesus. And you're working from that foundation, that this is yours. And now you are, you are free to live in light of that accomplished work. Not free to do whatever you want. It's freedom to pursue the holiness of God without fear of failure. Because this is already accomplished for you. This is the gospel, the gospel that Peter is giving this church. He is, Jesus is the one through whom all the blessings, the divine blessings flow, so to speak. And they are all ours by faith. We don't have to furiously search for them. Because nothing needs to be added. As he says here, he's already given us everything, as he says again, according, uh, given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's what I was trying to hint at earlier. Sometimes assurance, that doctrine of assurance, the doctrine uh, or this idea of having assurance, is sometimes articulated that way. That if you have some sort of doubt, you got to search your soul to make sure there's some uh, there's some quality that's missing, or it's not turned up to eleven, or something like that. But Peter's sermon of assurance here is not based on the qualities that are sort of byproducts of faith. He says, "You know where your assurance is? It's in Jesus and the cross." You know where you want to know where, how you can be assured of your salvation? Do you believe in the blood that was shed at Calvary? That's your assurance. Now any other little, little uh, sort of quality or box that you can check. It's none of that. It's Jesus. He's your assurance. He's your foundation. And out of that knowledge, again, the knowledge of God and of Jesus. It is this, it, that's what springs our faith. Where, as he says in verse 2, that's where grace and peace are multiplying. That's where glory and virtue are added and super added onto each other. Through this assured work of Jesus. This work that Peter says here is the gift of faith. Notice that's the, the really amazing sort of meaning of verse 1. He says, them that have tamed like precious faith. Again, he's writing in a time period where Jews and Gentiles were very adamantly opposed to one another. They didn't see eye to eye. And as was the case throughout Paul's uh, epistles, especially the epistle to the Romans. He is saying that it doesn't matter your nationality. It's about your faith in Jesus. And here he's saying the same sort of thing. You both have the same hope. That you Gentile churches have the same hope that we, the Jews, have. And it's this hope that resides in the righteousness of God that is given to us by Jesus. When you have knowledge of that, that's faith. And it's certain and it's sure. This is the mark of the church. What he's going to get into in chapter 2 is that how this teaching was being corrupted. They were facing external pressure by those who were trying to convince them to denounce their faith. And to sort of betray everything that they claimed to know. And here also too in chapter 2 they were facing an internal pressure by those who were seeking to, to sway them from this truth. To sway them from this gospel. And here we can see very clearly... A long and storied sort of internal pressure of the church that has existed for centuries. And there's lots of books that have been written about it, which is essentially this confusion of the way in which we are justified. And Peter here is saying, You're justified by faith because of Jesus, you're justified by that work. There was, so I was referencing Luther earlier. Luther, of course, did all of his Reformation work in Germany. And he, of course, is very famous for it. I once did, a, I wrote a paper a long time ago about another reformer that I had never really heard about until I did research on him. Uh, his name is Aonio Palerio, which you may guess he is from Italy. Uh, and you don't know a lot about him precisely because a lot of his works either weren't translated into English, and most of them stayed in Italian. But also you all likely don't know a lot about him because of the swift and severe counter-reformation that happened mainly in Italy. So as the Reformation truths are spreading throughout Europe, and Calvin is doing his work, and Bucer, and Knox, and all those guys, and everything is spreading around the rest of Europe, Italy was undergoing a severe counter-reformation by the Roman church to squash sort of the works of the Reformers. And one of them is this man, Aonio Polirio. He was in fact uh, put to death precisely for the defense of a book, which I have read, which I can give you if you see me. I'll make sure you can get it. It's called The Blood of Christ, or The Blood of Righteousness. It's one of those things. (laughs) Anyways, I'll get it to you if you want it. By the way, it's it's free on on Google. Um, You can look it up. Um, Anyways, uh, you can read it. Uh, It's translated in English. I don't know Italian. Um, uh, Just spoiler alert. Anyways, he was put on trial for this book. He was put on trial to say, do you still believe in all these things? And he and there's an amazing sort of uh, letter that he writes where he's writing to his family about the fact that he is going to be hanged for the things that he was writing in his defense of them. And you want to know one of the things that he writes? It's this. Listen to this paragraph. This is an Italian reformer. He says, let us give the whole glory of our justification unto God's mercy. And to the merits of his son, who by his own bloodshed hath set us free from the sovereignty of the law and from the tyranny of sin and death. And hath brought us into the kingdom of God to give us life and endless felicity. That's a paragraph that led to his hanging. Or he says this, that let us give all the glory of our justification to the merits of Jesus Christ, with whom we be clothed through faith. That's the work of Christ, the, 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 the giving of, uh, through his divine power, all things that pertain to life and godliness is that we might be clothed in the righteousness of God. And here you have this reformer championing that message and he ends up being put to death for it. My friends, I would say this, that we are still feeling the effects of this. This is one of the reasons why you have that saying, semper reformanda, which is just meaning always be reforming. Which is always just to say, keep your hope in Jesus. (laughs) Keep your hope in the finished work of Christ. He's the champion of the reformations. (laughs) He's the champion of the Christian faith. He's the foundation of the Christian faith. And our works aren't to be our hope. They aren't to be the thing that we, we, that we rely on. Our certainty, as Peter is here everywhere proclaiming, our certainty for now and for all future days is this work of Jesus accomplished for us on our behalf. It's given to us. This is the gospel. You work from assurance, from an assurance held out to you. You can be confident in this Jesus' blood for you, Jesus' righteousness for you. As Luther would be famed for saying, this I think is the, the doctrine upon which this church stands or falls. Depending, depending on how they articulate how a sinner is justified, that's how that church will stand or fall. May, may we be a church that stands on the solid rock truth that we are justified by grace through faith. Which gives us an accomplished righteousness. That's our certainty. That's our foundation. Let us pray.